This is Afghan Dispatches from Chrome Radio. I'm Katrina Oliphant. In today's episode, Professor Sir Hugh Strawn from the University of St Andrews reflects on the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban in August 2021, why the West should have seen this coming, and the implications of the US withdrawal from Afghanistan for NATO's European allies. US foreign policy is now focused mainly on China and the threat in the Asia-Pacific. European allies of NATO will need to decide where their own interests lie a decision which the simmering standoff with Russia on Ukraine's borders has brought into sharp focus. This is an attempt to answer the question as to why the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan was both so quick and so surprising. But nobody should really have been surprised by the American decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, the event that triggered the speed of the collapse. As early as 2009, Barack Obama had sought ways to get out of Afghanistan. His immediate solution was a short-term one, a surge in troop numbers, but a time-limited surge. And when he argued for that, he was accepting what was defined at the time as a campaign of counterinsurgency, an endeavour to deal with rebellion within Afghanistan, and to do so in part by developing a new form of government, a more successful form of government, one which delivered education and development to the people of Afghanistan. His vice president, Joe Biden, now of course the president, took a contrary view. He argued that in 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, the United States committed itself simply to a counter-terrorism campaign. In other words, the objective was to get al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan to end the support which the Taliban was providing for it, and so to eliminate a threat that was a global threat rather than deal with a local issue, the issue of the future governance of Afghanistan. Given that, it was unlikely that when Joe Biden became the president of the United States himself, that he would necessarily support the idea that a counterinsurgency campaign should go on within Afghanistan for an indefinite period. His decision was made easier because the previous president, Donald Trump, had started a peace process in Afghanistan and had driven it forward relentlessly in terms which actually made it quite hard to backtrack. Many of Biden's critics have said all he had to do was keep the remaining American presence in country, only just over 2,000 troops and troops who were not actually suffering any immediate casualties. This is a false argument and certainly in the light of those who were advising the president. Because having begun a peace process, the Taliban elected not to attack American troops and wished simply to hasten the American exit. If America had reversed that policy, it wouldn't simply have had to maintain the status quo with low troop numbers. It would actually have had to deal with an escalation of the war, because once again, American troops would themselves have become targets. The surprise at the American decision to press ahead with the withdrawal, that Joe Biden confirmed the direction of travel which his Republican predecessor had adopted, reflected something else. It reflected a degree, I think almost of complacency among the allies of the United States, which rests on a rather exaggerated view of their own leverage over the government of America. What drives American foreign policy is quite rightly the interests of the United States more than the interests of the United States' junior allies. What the United States showed in this decision to press ahead with the withdrawal, 
as it showed incidentally in the 2009 decision to mount a surge and the terms on which that surge was set up, was a reluctance, indeed a refusal, to engage with the Allies in any meaningful way. America simply takes its own decisions and expects its allies to fall in line behind it. The failure to read the United States aright was replicated by another failure, the failure to read the intelligence aright. Much more press commentary in the course of August 2021, even from July 2021, was commenting on the failure of Western allies of the United States and of the United States itself to anticipate the speed of the Taliban advance to the point that even towards the end, as the Taliban was closing in on Kabul, on the capital city, there was an expectation that Kabul would hold out. In order to explain the roots of that intelligence failure, that failure to anticipate the speed of the Taliban's success, we need to know more than we know at the moment. But a few factors seem to be important, and some of them ones that really haven't had sufficient attention. The first is the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Within the United Kingdom, as indeed in other countries, COVID disrupted the interdepartmental working of government. The United Kingdom National Security Council seems barely to have addressed Afghan policy and indeed met extraordinarily infrequently in the course of 2020 and 2021. Cabinet meetings were not held in person in the UK government. And if that was applying nationally, think of the implications internationally. To discuss the sorts of issues that Afghanistan generated requires people to meet round the table in person to debate and to argue, and that simply seems to have been absent. But COVID also had a direct effect within Afghanistan itself. It meant that those from the West, those in embassies in Kabul, were reduced in number because of the threat to their health and were reduced in the way in which they could establish links with the rest of the country. My guess is the view that was coming back to the capitals of NATO, powers, and of the United States was essentially a Kabul-centric view, not one that reflected what was going on in the countryside and in the provinces of Afghanistan. It was also disproportionately reliant on signals intelligence. The problem with signals intelligence is that if you keep radio silence, if you don't use your mobile phones and other forms of electronic communication, then actually you're very hard to keep track of. And the information that your opponent is picking up is likely to be inadequate. In order to understand what was happening at ground level in Afghanistan in 2020 and 2021, you needed human intelligence, agents on the ground. And here, intelligence collection seems to have been inadequate. Having said that, Quite a lot of Afghan expatriates seemed to know what was going on, and it might have been thought that that would have reached the governments of their host countries. The final point is that, to all intents and purposes, diplomatic activity in Kabul had been suspended, as well as intelligence activity. The speed of the collapse prompted Joe Biden to blame not his intelligence services, or the State Department, or any other government departments of the United States who were involved in Afghanistan, the speed of the collapse instead prompted him to blame the Afghan National Army. This, after all, was an army that was trained to fight by the United States and its allies, but of course trained to fight in ways that suited those Western allies. In other words, it was optimized to fight as the teeth arm of an army which 
in British or American terms, would also consist of logistics, artillery, communications, transport, supply, all the things that make a modern army tick. And that side of the army was comparatively underdeveloped. The army, having been optimized as a Western army, was much more reliant on those sort of additional assets than a force like the Taliban trained to fight light and to be less reliant on technological support, of which the provision of aircraft was the most obvious in the press reporting which the Americans could provide. The challenge here, too, is that the Afghan National Army were being asked to control a country over which the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, the government established effectively by the United States after 9-11, had only limited control. The principal agent of civil order in most countries is not the army, but the police. And the perennial weakness throughout the last two decades in Afghanistan has not been the Afghan National Army, but the Afghan National Police. That has been the weak point in Afghan security. And without the Afghan National Police being strong, then the Kabul government does not itself have an agency for domestic security. Many parts of Afghanistan were effectively unpoliced. And that in itself created an opportunity for the Taliban, who could themselves provide the security which the police were not able to provide. The United States created a situation which made the Afghan government dependent on American support, but then effectively withdrew that support when the United States government began to negotiate directly with the Taliban. It bypassed Kabul in 2020 and 2021, despite the fact that formally speaking, some parts of the Taliban were still in terms of the United States' own legislation and in terms of much of the rest of the world, a terrorist organization. It effectively gave the Taliban a legitimacy by taking it as a negotiating partner in a peace process, while at the same time denying it legitimacy as a belligerent. This insouciance, if that's the right word, with regard to the people of Afghanistan and the government of Afghanistan, goes right back to 2001 and the impact of 9-11. Hamid Karzai, then identified as a possible future leader of Afghanistan, was clear from the outset of the successful initial operations in Afghanistan that the Taliban should be brought into the provisional government in order to lay the grounds for future reconciliation within Afghanistan. The US blocked that precisely because they saw the Taliban as a terrorist organization with whom no compromise was possible. What then followed was a succession of appointments and elections in which the US's role in choosing who would lead Afghanistan was paramount. Karzai came in as a provisional president, and then in the election of 2009, he was effectively approved because the US approved him. And that process seemed even more blatant in 2014 when Ashraf Ghani was elected as his successor. For many Afghans, the election had been won not by Ghani, but by Abdullah Abdullah. And it was the US representative, John Kerry, who intervened to arbitrate as to who should actually become the president and to generate what amounted to a power-sharing agreement between the two of them, despite the fact that there was very little they could agree on. Ghani, Gandhi-esque, but aloof, ascetic and arrogant, was the beneficiary and the victim of the association with the United States. He was somebody whom it seemed the United States could do business with, but he did not help himself by getting out among the people 
or engaging with the media in order to build a popular following. He became an increasingly isolated figure in Kabul, a president with no direct control over a deeply divided government. I suspect, but I don't know, that the accusation of corruption levelled against Ghani was no worse than the accusations of corruption that could be levelled against many other Afghan politicians and officials. But in Ghani's case, the accusation stuck precisely because he was isolated and unpopular and had failed to establish a rapport either with his own government or with his own people. And that distance was deepened by the lack of accountability in the creation of the Afghan parliament. This was an institution which was rightly trumpeted as a success, just as the Afghan army was trumpeted as a success. Because like the Afghan army, female participation was high. At one point, there were more female MPs in the Afghan parliament than there were in the British parliament. But there was no relationship between parliament and government. The government was not accountable to the parliament in the way in which we in Britain have a government accountable to parliament. And with over 100 parties in Afghan politics, there was no effective party system which created a viable and coherent opposition. By the end, the government of Afghanistan had to deal with the Taliban because the United States had done a deal without their cooperation, but there was insufficient unity within the government to produce a coherent position. And by the time it had to deal with the Taliban, it had already lost control of too much of the country to have the territorial authority all the legitimacy in many parts of Afghanistan to carry through a negotiated deal if such a deal had been on the table. Afghanistan, as we've often heard, got rich on this war. War brought wealth which Afghanistan had never had before, to the point that by 2021, 45% of its income was derived from foreign aid. The consequences of that wealth are evident. Kabul has been transformed into a modern city over the last two decades. But the effect of that wealth has been to increase the division between those who live in the capital and the conditions that apply there and those who live in the countryside in the provinces. This is not to say this was necessarily an egalitarian society before 9-11. But the point is that much of this wealth has stuck in certain hands and not reached others. This was a division across Afghan society which the Taliban could exploit. And they did so by taking control of the countryside before they took control of the city. The timing of negotiations with the withdrawal of the United States peaking from April 2021 through to August coincided with the so-called fighting season of the Taliban. If this whole process had been completed in the winter and the withdrawal completed in the winter, the opportunities for fighting would have been much more circumscribed because of adverse weather conditions. We still don't know enough about how the Taliban conducted the campaign, but for any military historian, it has been a stunning success, a sort of blitzkrieg on steroids. It looks like a traditional rural insurgency. It won the support of at least enough of the people in the countryside on the ground to ensure that it had control of the resources of the countryside. It also had external sanctuaries, links to both Pakistan and Iran, which gave it access to support facilities, which meant that its casualties could be evacuated there for treatment, and which enabled it to bring arms and increasingly foreign fighters into the country to reinforce them. 
the Taliban was also able to trade on war weariness. This is a country that has been at war for four decades, not just two decades, as is the case for the United States and its allies. And without a clear sense of political direction to grip that war weariness, it was only too easy for people to decide to go with what was happening on the ground rather than go with directions that might come from the capital. Traditionally, the Taliban has been a divided organisation with separate networks and generational differences. Those divisions were not immediately evident during the course of the campaign, although now the Taliban are in power, they are re-emerging. The distinction most notably between the Haqqani network, which was focused on Peshawar and what we think of in Britain as the northwest frontier of India and the Duran line, and the Quetta to the south, with its links to Helmand and to the Pashtun population of Afghanistan. But it's also been an opportunity for foreign fighters, supporters of al-Qaeda, more radical figures than those even associated with the Taliban, to return to the fray. And whether there is a generational difference between those who are now doing the fighting, 20 years on from 9-11, and those who are doing the talking, who have been part of the peace negotiations in Doha with the United States, who may be old warriors, is not entirely clear. There is, of course, in these splits, scope for the renewal of war within Afghanistan. The immediate resistance to the Taliban after the capture of Kabul came from the Panjshir Valley. Tajiks in the Panjshir wanted to come to terms, that's what they said. In reality, no terms were available. The Taliban has reported that peace has been established in the Panjshir Valley, but the indications are that that is not the case. And now, on top of that, the divisions within the Taliban itself are putting people on edge, leave the sense that the country could yet descend into civil war. And those Taliban who wish to appear moderate, who are appealing to the West, seem to be alienating those who are of a more radical disposition, who in desperation are turning to ISIS rather than stay with the Taliban. The United States narrative by 2021 had become that of forever wars. The idea that the United States was engaging in wars in parts of the world where its interests were not immediately obvious to many of its peoples, and which produced no quick victories and no decisive outcomes. The events of August 2021 show the danger of the United States believing its own narrative. This war has now ended, and it has ended in victory, but in victory for the enemy and defeat for the West. The only way to reverse that at the moment is military, as in the 1990s, and to support insurgency and foment civil war. There seems very little appetite for that in the West, and there are strong moral objections to that, because the effect of promoting civil war and further insurgency would be to deepen the humanitarian crisis, which was already present even before the Taliban took over. In 2020, with the impact of COVID and then drought, and then in 2021, cuts in foreign aid, including, of course, most conspicuously foreign aid from the United Kingdom, problems were manifold already throughout the country. The reality is that if we are to help the people of Afghanistan, we have to accept the dangers to their rights, the threat in particular to women, because they, the Taliban, are, as of this moment, the de facto government of Afghanistan, and they need to be recognized as such if any humanitarian aid is to be able to reach the people of Afghanistan.
So what does this defeat say about NATO and the Western alliance? NATO itself has been humiliated and weakened. Its Secretary General, when confronted with the collapse of Kabul, repeated the American line that the defeat was the fault of the Afghan National Army. There was no suggestion in that of any humility, no suggestion that NATO itself had somehow failed to respond to the crisis and that it too had no clear answer to the renewed threat of counterterrorism. In 2016, NATO had already established a narrative that saw the war in Afghanistan as a success not because the counterterrorism mission had been accomplished or because NATO had delivered peace and order to Afghanistan, but because NATO had not imploded under the pressure of a war conducted out of its normal geographical area. The fear when NATO first went into Afghanistan was that this was the ultimate test for NATO cohesion and that if NATO didn't deliver victory in Afghanistan, then it would have failed ironically not because of the Soviet threat during the Cold War, but because it was incapable of mounting out-of-area operations. To some extent, it has been defeated, but NATO has not imploded, because during the course of the conflict, it has managed to reconstruct the narrative and present it as a success, because its members were able to deploy in theatre, and by doing so, they were less concerned with what they were doing for Afghanistan or the Afghan people and more concerned with keeping the United States involved in the future security of Europe and in guaranteeing the alliance as a body working for international security in its own right. That may sound unduly cynical. Some within those NATO countries have come to care deeply about the Afghan people and the future of Afghanistan because of their own immersion in the country over what was, for most NATO countries, a decade-long engagement rather than a two-decades-long engagement as it has been for the United States. Since 2014, NATO countries have not been engaged in active military operations in Afghanistan, and in part as a result of the absence of casualties, the attention of their publics and of their governments has been elsewhere. NATO's European members have become more preoccupied with the increasing threat from Russia than the situation in Central Asia. In March 2021, the UK government published its integrated review of defence and security policy. It contained almost no reference to Afghanistan and very little to the threat of global terrorism. NATO's failure carries deep implications for the United Kingdom and for the integrated review of defence and security policy. The National Security Council, as I've already said, has barely met since the beginning of the pandemic. And there has been little evidence that there has been any attempt to try and influence either the direction of US foreign policy or the peace process with the Taliban. Nor has there been much effort, it would seem, to anticipate the consequences of the American policy's implementation. It is wrong to see US policy as symptomatic of a US withdrawal into isolationism, the panic that immediately flowed as the scenes were broadcast from Kabul airport. The references to Vietnam and the fall of Saigon, all suggesting that this was a major turning point in US international engagement. Biden, to reiterate the point with which I began, has stressed realism, not isolationism. He has suggested a need to concentrate American resources on what he sees as the principal global threat, that of China. When Obama delivered his speech in January 2012, 
prioritizing what was then called the pivot to Asia-Pacific, European powers did not want to hear. They were worried that if the Americans went to the Pacific, they would abandon the Atlantic, that if they went to Asia, they'd be abandoning the security of Europe. That pivot to Asia-Pacific has, however, become more insistent and, crucially, now commands bipartisan support in the United States when so little does command bipartisan support. Global Britain needs to think hard as it militarises its extension into the Indo-Pacific. As Afghanistan was falling, the aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth II was deployed to the Pacific. Here, the Cold War never ended. Here too, deterrence rests on crisis management. The possibility of major war is the vehicle, increasingly, for regulating relations between China and the United States. The threat that a crisis could turn to war in short order, you have two nuclear powers without any arms control agreement, without any formal mechanism for regulating their relationships in the event of a crisis, the threat of that is what is designed to keep peace. The United States is following its own interests in its redeployment to the Pacific. The European allies of NATO need to consider their own interests and where they stand in relation to the United States' reconcentration and redeployment. Their immediate interests lie in Europe and the Atlantic, but of course they also depend on the United States for a high degree of security. How do they balance those two considerations when the US turns in another direction? They confronted that crisis in 2001 in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks and took one set of decisions. They could confront that crisis again, and the question is, will they conclude that the United States' interests are not any longer their own? That need to think about where they stand is supplemented by the other aspect of Biden's global engagement. His most direct response to the Afghan humiliation has to reinvoke the rhetoric of the global war on terrorism, to argue that one thing that will take him back to Afghanistan is the re-emergence of a terrorist threat that could affect the United States directly. That is where we began, and that seems to be where we have returned to. That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn from the School of International Relations at the University of St Andrews. Do join us next time. In the meantime, please share this podcast on. I'm Katrina Oliphant, and you've been listening to Afghan Dispatches from Chrome Radio. Thank you.